Well, again, good morning, everybody. Uh, glad that you guys have joined us today. Like Dakota said, I'm Austin. I'm uh, lead pastor here at Chaparral. Glad you guys are here. We've got a lot going on, which is really fun. Just this past weekend on Friday, if you uh, missed it, Friday was April 1st, April Fool's Day. And if you don't know this, I send out emails every Friday uh, as, you know, from the pastor's desk, a little updates about, you know, things going on, usually a thought or two uh, about things. And so I don't really like pranks, just putting that all out there. I don't like it when they're done to me. So I don't really prank people. But it's not very often that you get to send your weekly email on, you know, April 1st. And so I decided to put in that email that we were going to change the spelling of Chaparral. Uh, <laughs> From we have two R's in Chaparral uh, and one P. I said we're gonna we're gonna do two P's and one R instead. And the number of you who cannot read to the bottom of the first section of an email was pretty awesome. So uh, for you guys that got it, yes, we're in. Uh, for the for the rest of you, we're not uh, readjusting the spelling. In fact, you will find multiple spelling errors. I said that we're going to rename books of the Bible in that if you would have kept reading. But uh, so hopefully you guys can trust that. Yeah, we're not we're not playing that game. Um, I I did youth ministry for 15 years, so I know that it might not sound like I don't like pranks uh, because that's where I come from, but I really don't. I don't like that kind of stuff because again, it's just, it's, I, whenever some, like if I get hit in the face with a pie, my first thought is never, oh, got me. My first thought is, where is he? I'm the youngest. I got two older brothers, all right? Uh, it is not a positive response. And so I don't really like to play that game of, of pranking people. Now, if one falls into my lap, I'm willing to go along and play with it. So this is years ago, like my first year in ministry, a long time ago, before cell phones and videos and all that stuff were around. So there's no video footage of it, whereas if it were today, I'd be able to like live stream the thing to you of what happened. There's this thing that happened. It was late at night on a college campus with a group of high school boys, and specifically one 14-year-old boy that was way too confident about a skunk. So, we, I, I, I'm in this town, small town, rural Missouri, best place ever, and it's, it, it was a ton of fun doing ministry there. Uh, they called me the big city slicker because I'm from Indiana, uh, from a town of 1,200 people. <laughs> and, and so to give you a little bit of insight about how small and rural this, what rural this was, it was insane. Like there were 10 people in each grade. Not in like the classroom, like the grade was. And so uh, K through 12 school, fewer than 200 kids. Just uh, a totally different kind of a thing than what we expect out here in Arizona, what we often see. So I'm there and I'm doing youth ministry and I'm loving it and get to know these kids. We took 30 kids to this week-long trip uh, on the other side of the state. We're staying on this college campus, having a great time. Uh, end of the night, girls go to their dorm and all of us guys, there's like a dozen of us or so, laughing, throwing a football around, you know, it's dark outside, so we're goofing off and just having a good time, long day, ready to crash into our, into our rooms. And off in the distance, this little guy, this 14-year-old, his name's Drew, thinks that I'm an idiot, and so he looks over at me and says, hey, Austin, bet you uh, can't touch that squirrel over there. I know it's a skunk, Right? Any human with eyes can tell, that's not a squirrel, that's a skunk. It has a, I've seen a lot of Looney Tunes, Pepe Le Pew, I know how this goes. 
so I, I see that and I say, Drew, I may be dumb, but I'm not stupid. That's a skunk. That's not a squirrel. And he's like, oh, okay, I guess you won't do it then. I said, yeah, you're right. I'm not going to do it. I bet you won't do it. And then the high school, the senior boys, they get in on it. They're like, yeah, Drew, you're not man enough to step up. And if you want to know what one thing you should never say to a 14-year-old boy is, it's I bet you won't fill in the blank. Because they are going to do whatever you tell them to do. Whatever you say they won't do. Whatever you dare them to. They're going to do it. And sure enough, he's got everybody watching him. So he's like, oh, I'd totally do it. And then they said the two words you should never say. Prove it. Prove it. All right, yeah, I'll prove it. So he walks up, and we're just dying laughing at even the thought of this. And I said, Drew, don't, don't get more than like five feet from it because it could spray you, and that'd be bad news for everybody, right? And so he gets up close, uh, you know, 10 feet, eight feet, and he keeps, t- and it was weird because as he's getting closer, you'd think like it would run away because it's a wild animal. It was definitely alive, but it wasn't moving at all. And so he creeps closer and closer, and he is, I kid you not, like bending down almost to touch it. And I said, okay, knock it off. No, 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 back away. You don't want to get sprayed. And he's like, oh, okay. And so we're all dying, laughing. He's, he's like 20, 30 yards away from us. And he starts walking back with this big old smile like, yeah, I totally did it. And we can't believe that he got that close to it. And as he gets closer to us, the smell starts coming in. I didn't know how far a skunk could spray. Come to find out it's a 15-foot radius. Uh, He was well within that. And you don't always know that you got sprayed when you get sprayed. It just kind of follows you around. And so as he comes back to us, we're like, dude, did you get sprayed? We don't know, like, you assume it's kind of like an aerosol can, right? It makes a sound when it sprays out. Apparently it doesn't. Uh, no, I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't hear a single thing. Nothing happened to me. I didn't get sprayed at all. And, and sure enough, he got sprayed. So we learned that the, the radius of that is, is much bigger than you would think. Also, when you look around and try to say, oh, well, how do you get rid of this? Uh, anybody know what you're supposed to take a bath in? Tomato juice. We did not know that that is a total lie uh, because we went out to Walmart and got lots of tomato juice and filled the bathtub and shoved them in it and made them soak for a long time. And it is not nearly acidic enough to take care of that stuff. So we got back to the church, you know, end of the trip, lives changed, all sorts of good stuff. Drew's mom comes around. It's like, oh, hey, honey, did you have a good time? said, hey, I got to tell you something. Uh, you're going to think I'm a bad pastor, and I'm just going to let you know I am uh, because I totally wanted to see what would happen, but your son kind of got sprayed, and so we had to throw the clothes he was wearing away, and she's like, what? And then she said, again, Drew? Just kidding. She didn't say that, but that would have been amazing, had she? Uh, the thing that I love about that is, is that this, there's this guy, and especially like as this young dude who's trying to prove himself smaller than everybody else, and you got all these older guys around you cheering you on, he didn't back down from the challenge. He stepped up. He said, hey, I'm willing to do it. And when they said prove it, he didn't hesitate. He had way too much confidence in that situation, but he went right in for it. In fact, that's what the, often we like out of a good leader, is we like somebody who doesn't just talk a big game, but somebody who just goes for it and 
and does it. Because it's always frustrating when you have a boss who tells you to do a bunch of stuff that he himself or she himself will not do. Like you, you want to be with somebody who's kind of in it with you and in, in going along uh, in that journey. So in, in Drew's case, he had like all the makings of a good leader there. In our world, we know that that's actually the kind of people that, for as goofy as they might be at times, are admirable. They're the ones that win us over. Even in the Old Testament, as we've been talking through Jeremiah, what we find the prophets being, even though they're not really kings, they're not emperors in any kind of a way, they are the people that you look at and say, they went there. <laughs> Like, when they said things are getting bad, they didn't back down. They stood their ground and said, yeah, things are terrible. And rather than running from it and saying, things are bad, see you later, they stuck around and they stayed in it. Jeremiah, for example, as we've been talking about, this is the 10th sermon, the last one in the whole series of messages that we're doing. Jeremiah says, guys, the whole, the whole city is going to be destroyed, and then when the Babylonian Empire, when the army is knocking on the door and starting to uh, lay siege to the walls and to the gates and starting to take people away, both kill them and exile them and so on, you find Jeremiah in the city. He's not running away from this stuff. And that, that kind of a mentality is the kind of mentality that has this resolve and this sense of trust that God is still at work even when things might not be going how you want. And we see that time and again throughout the story of Jeremiah. And so we're going to wrap up today in Jeremiah chapter 32. And it's kind of the end of the story uh, biographically about what's going on with Jeremiah, which is a little crazy because if you know anything about the book of Jeremiah, it's really long, 52 chapters. And so the end of it's like around 32. Yeah, one of the last, one of the later stories is in chapter 32, not chapter 52, because the book is not put together necessarily chronologically. Now, it doesn't make a ton of sense to us because a lot of the way we understand things is that that's how it works. But uh, in the book of Jeremiah, it tends to just be kind of a mixed bag of how you're going to go about it. So when you get to chapter 32, you're reading one of the final things of what's happening in Jeremiah's life. And where we find him is we find him as an older man. He's no longer the young guy. We've, we started off, I mean, we started off with the story of happening decades even before he was born, but we've seen Jeremiah grow and get to know kings. And he's been around. He's been around for the good kings at the beginning, King Josiah, this guy that led this massive reform, and he's seen the good kings make dumb decisions. And he's seen bad kings make wise choices. And he's seen people just completely fail miserably. And he's seen glimmers of success. He's been around, and at this point in the story, he's with the final king of Judah. His name is Zedekiah. He's with Zedekiah, and Zedekiah, he's not a great guy. And the ending of it, I'll just say this, things don't go well for him. He does not finish his life with his eyes intact. Things are bad. Uh, he sees the murder of his own children. It's just, it's a terrible story. So, so he's there with Zedekiah, and he knows that he has been there he has done that. He's seen kings rise. He's seen them fall. He's been there for feast. He's been there for famine. Jeremiah has seen this, and he still stays strong to his message. He still holds tight. He says, guys, we don't have to experience all the bad stuff. Like, God has a plan for us, and if we go along with him, things will be in the way that God wants them to be. We don't have to mess all this stuff up. But repeatedly, people say, nah, 
No, I don't, I don't trust you. I want to go my way. And so they call Jeremiah the weeping prophet because it's like shouting into the wind for him. He has this message from God, but nobody will listen to him. And so Jeremiah in the 32nd chapter is with Zedekiah and he keeps giving these prophecies and here's actually what he says. Uh, Here's what's happening there. Uh, The army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem. So Babylon is north of Jerusalem, north of the kingdom of Judah and it's coming down south into Jerusalem and that's important for a reason that we'll see here in a little bit. The army uh, of the king of Babylon was then besieging Jerusalem and Jeremiah Jeremiah the prophet was confined to the courtyard of the guard in the royal palace of Judah. Now Zedekiah, king of Judah, had imprisoned him there. So he's arrested. He's not in prison like far off. He's just arrested in the temple courts there. So he he can still have a conversation with the guy. In fact, people could come by and visit Jeremiah too. Um, and, And Zedekiah says to him, why do you prophesy as you do? Why are you so mean to me, Jeremiah? Why are you so rude? Why can't you just say something nice? What's, what's Jeremiah supposed to say to that? I'm, I got nothing nice to say because you're not listening. You're not, I'm not going to be like some of these other prophets. And trust me, they had other prophets telling them all the nice things, leading them down the wrong path. Like, it's better to hear the harsh words that lead you toward life than it is to hear all the flowery stuff all the time while you slowly die. I don't want a doctor to pat me on the back and say, Austin, everything's fine. Don't worry about anything if I have a real disease to worry about, right? So Jeremiah's there. He's sounding the alarm constantly. And Zedekiah, along with a lot of other kings before him, just covers his eyes, covers his ears. It's like he's sitting on the railroad tracks and the train's coming down and a mile off it's sounding its horn. And it's just laying into it. And he looks over and he's like, man, that's a loud horn. And then a half mile, it's, it's louder and it lays on it longer. Oh man, that is a, why would they, that's such a loud horn. Why would they put such a loud horn while their car sits on the tracks and the train is barreling down toward it? Quarter mile, it gets right there. And they say, man, that is so loud, I have to cover my eyes and ears now. Come on, right? In, in this story, Jeremiah is the horn. He's the one that's there saying, guys, look out, look out, look out. You, this does not have to be your story. And all Zedekiah does is cover his eyes and cover his ears and say, I don't, I, I don't think that this is the problem. I think you are the problem. Well, what happens in that case? Babylon enters onto the scene and things happen. So this quick shift gives us an incredibly uh, good picture of what's going on here. Uh, a little bit of context. Uh, Well, here, I'll read it first, and then we'll give you a little context. Jeremiah uh, said in verse 6, Jeremiah said, the word of the Lord came to me. This is God talking to Jeremiah. Hanamel, son of Shalom, your uncle, so this is Jeremiah's cousin, is going to come to you and say, buy my field at Anatoth. This is a pivotal moment in the whole narrative of Jeremiah. This is one of my favorite moments, honestly, in the whole Bible. Buy my field at Anatoth. Hmm, does that feel good? You get it? Should I pray and wrap this up? Like, is that good? Uh, Okay, yeah, that's not how this works. Okay, Uh, if you're going to understand this, this isn't going to be the easiest thing to get what's happening here. There's a, a few things going on. The first thing that's going on here 
As we get into this, in, in the Bible, uh, you, that you have to understand is that some of the Bible is really easy to eat and digest. Uh, it, it's like fortune cookies and little proverbs and pithy little stories. You know, Jesus gets up and tells the story of the Good Samaritan. And like, we get that and it's, the points are usually obvious and simple. And sometimes it's easy just to sit down and read that and digest it and say, hmm, there's my inspiration for the day. And then other times, you read a story about a guy buying a field in Anatoth. And you're like, cool. Sounds great. I don't get it, right? It doesn't make as much sense. What you have to do, and, and this is true of any good story, you, you know this, your favorite movies, whatever your favorite movie is, which is definitely Terminator 2, right? Arnold Schwarzenegger, you got the gun, you're saving the kid. It's a good story. It's about redemption and saving. It's very Christ-like if you think about it. Um, Whatever story you identify with, whatever the thing is, you love it so much because you put yourself into the shoes of the main characters. You, put your, you invest in it emotionally, and now you're thinking of it through that. We're, uh, I'm reading the Harry Potter books to my kids, and uh, of course, it's just like, it's perfectly written for them. And so it's hard for them to not feel like they are Harry Potter. And so they're just addicted to it. They love it right now. And that's wonderful. That's a great skill to have. In fact, that's what you have to bring with you sometimes when you're reading the Bible as well. Put yourself into his shoes. So here's what Jeremiah's looking at. The field of Anatoth, this is his hometown, by the way. His hometown of Anatoth is north of Jerusalem. Babylon is north of Anatoth, right? So when Babylon is at the gates in Jerusalem, they had to go through what city to get there? Anatoth. So what, is, what kind of shape do you think Anatoth is in? Now that the biggest military has rolled through and kidnapped and done terrible, terrible things, we call them war crimes today, to the women, to the children, taking them away as slaves, murdered, the vineyards they set fire to, they dumped salt in all of the places to rid the land and to scourge it. It really is the epitome of a scorched earth campaign. And as they're coming down, they're doing that to everything. They're just laying waste to everything, including Anatoth. And so Jeremiah's cousin, who does not have a high opinion of him, Hanamel, he comes over and he sees Jeremiah. And Jeremiah is the crazy cousin. He's the weird guy. He doesn't get married. He doesn't have any kids. He's always in bad graces with everybody. He always says things. Instead of saying nice things, it's like he's always saying these mean things. And people are always beating up on him. And so when that's your cousin, you think, yeah, it's cool to kind of keep him at arm's distance. So Hanmel sees this older guy, old cousin Jeremiah. He says, hey, I'd like to sell you a field. In fact, that's exactly where we pick up. Verse 8, then the Lord said, God tells him, hey, your cousin's going to come sell you a field, which sounds ridiculous. Why would you sell me a field right there? Because that field is worthless, right? The, but sure enough, my cousin Hanamel came to me in the courtyard of the guard and said, buy my field, Anatoth, in the territory of Benjamin. This, is, this field that is being overran, this field that Jeremiah has no descendants to pass it off to, even if he did have descendants, part of his prophetic, part of what he has said is that by the time God is done cleaning house here, it's going to take at least two generations for people to even start moving back into Jerusalem, back into this area. Like, this is a mess. There's nothing good happening here. So Hanamel comes up and he says the equivalent of, hey, I got a bridge in Brooklyn I'd like to sell you. 
hey, I got this great investment opportunity, some property in Ukraine right along the Russian border. I think you'd, it'd be a great fit for you. You know, because invading armies really uh, respect property rights, don't they? So he goes to him, and he has this ridiculous proposition. And everybody knows it's a ridiculous proposition. But Jeremiah sees an opportunity in this. This field that is worthless, where everything is destroyed and dead. There's no life left in this thing. So Jeremiah says, shut up and take my money. Here's verse 9. So I bought the field at Anatoth for my cousin Hanamel and weighed out for him 17 shekels of silver. I don't know what the exact conversion is. I just know that that's not enough to buy a field. Why would he give him 17 shekels? Because that's probably all that Jeremiah had to his name. He's just a poor guy doing his thing. Hanamel says, well, you just give me whatever you got, Jeremiah. Sure, here's 17 shekels. That's, that's nothing. Whatever. It's one shekel is more than the field's worth. So I'll go ahead and take it. So he takes his 17 shekels of silver. I signed and sealed the deed, had it witnessed, and weighed out the silver on the scales. When all hope was lost... Jeremiah bought a field. When, all, when, when the whole world is like caving in and everything seems like it's just breaking down, Jeremiah does the most basic, normal thing you could possibly imagine. And when he does this, he sets himself apart from everybody else. Everybody else is freaking out. Oh my goodness, and nothing's worth anything, and, and we're all going to die, and what should we do? And, and that's their mentality. Jeremiah's over there, and he says, well, I'm going to buy a field. I'm going to live my life, because God has given my life to me to lead however he has led me to, and here we go. Here's a field. I'll, I'll buy that. There's a story a few weeks back that I heard that I thought was just amazing. Uh, this woman in, in Kiev while the city is being shelled, there's all the destruction and terrible war that's happening around her. And she thought, man, right now, um, it's normally when I go get my nails and eyebrows done. But she can't get it done, can she? Except she realized the person who does her nails and eyebrows is still in Kiev. So she reaches out and says, hey, would you mind? Like, could I come over and we could kind of live our life? So she goes over, gets her nails and eyebrows done. I thought, that is the best thing you could possibly do when the world is going crazy around you. Don't let that define you. Live your life. Here's what you do. I still have dignity. I will still go about what I do in the way that I do it. It's fine. Is it, was the woman worried? Of course. What, do you think that she wasn't aware of all the things? Of course she's aware of all of that. But that wasn't going to be the thing that defined her. In the same way, Jeremiah, was Jeremiah aware that there's this nation called Babylon that's going to, of course, he's been prophesying about it for so long, for decades. But that wasn't going to be the thing that defined him. He was going to still move forward. And, and when you do that, what you're saying is you're saying to your circumstances, you're saying to the things around you, you don't control me. I don't really control you. I don't know how much of us really control what happens around us, but we do have a say in what happens around us, don't we? We still have our dignity. We still have our life to lead. And so even when the pain, even when the suffering comes about, 
we lean into that and we say, okay, that's fine. God can use this too. So when Jeremiah makes the purchase, everyone assumes the land is dead, everything is worthless, end of story. And this is where you get one of the coolest passages in all of the Bible. He purchases land and says this, for this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, houses, fields, and vineyards will again be bought on this land. Think of a prophet going to Ukraine right now and saying that. I know that all of the reality of what, and this is not to make light and we're not going to dismiss any of this, but here's what we know. There will come a time that this is not the story of the nation. And Jeremiah goes to his people and he says, there will come a time that all of this chaos and all this negativity, all this suffering and this pain will not be our story. Now notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, and that day is today. I'm going to snap my fingers and make it all go away. Here's the magical incantation that if you two recite, you can go without pain. He doesn't do that. Because that's not how this works. That's not how judgment works. That's not how the story goes. It's not about escaping. Rather, it's about honoring where you're at and taking an inventory and saying, okay, God is in this too. And you may not know where, but God can take you out of it as well. And God can show you and reveal hope to you. And for us, there's, we're Americans, there's this tension that kind of sits in our hearts and our minds that is difficult. We often think that suffering is a sign that something is wrong and, suffer, and something is bad. And it makes a lot of sense. When a part of your body hurts, you might want to pay attention. Maybe you need to take it easy. Maybe you need to go see a doctor. Maybe something much more. I don't know. So we understand that, yeah, that's kind of a part of it. But often when we think of how it relates to God, we often think that suffering and goodness are opposed to one another. In fact, uh, there's one of the most, I think, convincing arguments against the existence of God. I don't find it very convincing, but I think it's the best one out there. Why is there so much suffering in the world? Why do bad things happen? And I'm not going to solve that today. We've got a few minutes left. I'm not going to try to fix all that right now. But here's, here's what I'll say. Is that we often think that suffering and goodness are opposed to one another. But what we often find in, in the whole story, especially when you're looking through Jeremiah, when you're looking through the Bible, is that suffering and goodness are often attached to one another. I think of Good Friday. We have this thing we're celebrating in a couple of weeks. We call it Good Friday. If you were there when the crucifixion happened, that's what happens on Good Friday. If you were there and you were one of Jesus' followers, if there's one word I can guarantee you would not use to describe that day, it's good. You would not call it, everybody was weeping. Nobody understood what this cross thing meant. That's what happens to the bad guys, not the good guys. That's not where the king is supposed to end up. So there's this disorientation that comes about through that. And so we call it Good Friday, but they certainly wouldn't have called it that. However, eventually they did. And the answer as to why is fairly obvious. It's not because of what happened on that day that it's a good day. It's because of what God did through what happened on that day 
that makes that a good day. Suffering in and of itself, I'm not going to try to explain that away. That's not a thing. Suffering in and of itself is not bad. Suffering is a part of life. This is, this is what happens. What, it, what we have to do is we have to figure out whether or not we're going to trust that God will take the pain, that God will take the suffering that is inevitable in every single one of our lives, that is a part of every single one of our stories, and if, whether or not we're going to allow him to transform it and use it for good. Because I know so many stories of you guys right here in this room right now, those of you that might not be with us in person but watching online, there's so many stories of you in your life where you have suffered something tragic. And through that, you have learned and you have grown. And it's not that you want to go back to that. We don't want to put Jesus back on the cross. We don't want to go back to the bad, the, the, the suffering part of things, right? Right? We don't wish that upon people. However, we know who we are today and we know what God has done in our hearts and in our lives today that have left us in a place of gratitude, in a place of peacefulness, that had we not gone through certain things, we would not have. And is it that we're grateful? Maybe. Maybe not, let's be honest. But it's that we're willing we're willing to let hope shine into the dark places. And that's what Jeremiah shows us in something as simple as buying a field. He's showing us that we have a father in heaven who is a master at turning tragedy into triumph. He's a master at turning tragedy into hope and making those things, triumph and hope, and truth and grace and peace a reality in our lives. This is what God does. And here's another great verse that happens just a few verses later in the same chapter. God says, I am the Lord, the God of all mankind. Is anything too hard for me? He's not looking at himself. He's not staring at his you know, divine biceps saying, look at how strong I am. No, no, no. He's looking out at his people. He's looking at the land and he sees the suffering and he's there with them. He says, I can work with this. This isn't plan number one, but I can work with this. Whatever you throw God's way, God can work with that. Our Father in heaven understands that no matter what it is that the world throws at us, we can overcome that. Faith, according to Jeremiah and, and all throughout the Bible, is not this detached thing. It's a part of the life that you and I lead. Faith and hope and love is not just this nice thing that looks good on the kitchen in a nice cursive font above the you know, uh, refrigerator or wherever you have it in your house. Uh, faith, hope, and love is something that we trust that when we go to the grocery store, we're trusting that, hey, in the same way Jeremiah bought a field, yeah, you know what, I'm just going to go to the grocery store today. That, there's an act of faith there. There's a spiritual act when you pay your mortgage. There's a spiritual act happening when you simply have a conversation with somebody. God is in all of that. None of these things go beyond God's reach. God looks at your life, every aspect of your life, and he says, I can work with that. I can work with that. Our choice, our option, what we have before us is to decide whether or not we want God to work with that. Or whether we want to hold on to the situation, hold on to the, the, the circumstances that we're in in that moment and say, no, 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 I don't need you on this one, God. I got it. Which, of course, is a recipe to become like all of the kings 
that Jeremiah lived his life with. What we have before us is an opportunity to trust God. And what happens when we do that is we have these little rebellions, just small, tiny rebellions. We're not, I'm not just going to live my life. I'm going to live the life that God wants me to lead, however that looks. And it looks really normal. It looks like you going and, and getting coffee with somebody and realizing that that person does not need to hear from you. That maybe you're in that place and it's time for you to give that person your ear for an hour because that's the way that you're going to serve the Lord that day. It looks like you going and maybe even uh, living your life new and saying, you know what, I want to have more energy, I want to work hard, I want to do uh, more things for God, so I'm going to go on a diet and I'm going to get myself in shape. Fantastic, great spiritual reasons to do that. That is a part of this. It looks like putting away your phone so that you can be with your family a little bit more, so that you can invest in this thing uh, at your house with your relationships. It looks like all sorts of stuff, but we don't just give people ribbons for doing these things. Rather, we do these things because this is who God has led us to be. Not just people who only show up to have a little bit of spirituality dumped on us between 11 or 10 and 11 a.m. on Sunday morning, and not even just people who have, you know, maybe you do a Bible study, you do a little bit of reading in the mornings, other stuff like that. That's all fantastic and stuff. That's not the extent of spirituality. Spirituality, as Jesus says, is when you love God and love others. When you show God the love and respect he is due, who then does not hoard it all for himself. He says, you want to know what it looks like to love me? Go take care of this person. And so then you say, okay, I'm going to carve out Tuesday nights. I'm going to spend it with a bunch of men, a bunch of women who have not had the same opportunities in life that I have had. And I'm going to help bring them up with me. A rising tide lifts all ships, right? What if our society looked more and more like that? And what if that started here with us? What we know throughout all of this is that Jeremiah's hope was not in his circumstances. He made the intentional choice to do whatever was true. And it seemed ridiculous. It seemed ridiculous because here's this dead piece of land. And God says, that land that you have, I can bring it back. I can buy that land back. In fact, that's what I want you to do, Jeremiah. I want you to buy that back because I'm going to bring new life into that land. Do you see the ties into what happens with Jesus here? What happens with you and what happens with me? Is that God finds us when we are desolate, when there is nothing left. You might be at your lowest moment. You might be at your highest moment. I don't know. But God says that that, however good or however bad, none of that defines you. It's not your performance that plays into this. Rather, it's God's grace and his love. And when we find that, what we find is the life that he set out for us. The good, perfect, and true life. And in that, it's not easy, smooth sailing. It's not perfect. It's filled with suffering and it's filled with pain. And what we do is we have hope that goes beyond our circumstances that God is still at work and that God will take all of the things that have happened in your life and in my life and he will continue molding them. In fact, that's what we find in Jesus is not just a God who uh, comes down to earth and identifies with us, certainly that, but the God who is willing to go to the cross for us 
and show us that even when the worst of the worst, even when just tremendous injustice and suffering happens in Jesus, that is not the end. That's not the story. The story isn't that Jesus was crucified. It's that he was crucified and resurrected, as we'll see. So, my hope, my prayer for you this week, this month, this year, your life, is that in Jeremiah, through, through this guy who we, we, the funny thing, we don't really have a biography about, and we don't know how this, his whole story ends. It doesn't give us the detail. All we know is this old man kind of sails off into the sunset in some way. But what we know is that he had hope. And he showed you and he showed me how to live faithfully even when things hit the fan. He shows us that we too can trust. We can trust that God is at work even in the hard times.